0: December 26, 1982. An Aboriginal boy left his home in northwest Sydney, Australia. He was headed to a train station to visit his aunt in a nearby suburb. However, the 10-year-old never arrived, and he has never been seen since, almost 40 years later. This is Bradford's story. Bradford Warner Foley was born October 16th, 1982, to mother Lorna. Now, Lorna is also known as Sue. I couldn't find any mention of his father in my research. Regardless, it doesn't appear his father played much of a role in his life. Bradford was the youngest of three children, with an older brother, Bernie, and older sister, Anita. Bradford, or Brad as he was more commonly known as, Brad had just finished the fourth grade at Cullington Public School. He would be described by those who knew and loved him as an all-round good kid, but he was also your typical ten-year-old boy. He was mischievous and rebellious. He was also friendly and curious. Brad was known to talk to people he didn't know, eager to get to know the different cultures and backgrounds of the people around him. This was something his mother Sue did not like and she would frequently warn him against talking to strangers. Throughout Brad's life, the Foley family had moved numerous times. At one point, the family moved seven times in a period of just two months. In December 1982, the family had just moved to 51 Warwick Road in the working-class suburb of Dundas in New South Wales, which is located in northwest Sydney. December 26, 1982 Boxing Day in Australia At around midday, Sue Foley asked 10-year-old Brad and his older siblings, sister 14-year-old Anita and brother 12-year-old Bernie, to take the train to their aunt Marilyn Cox's home in Newtown. Sue was borrowing some money from her to buy cigarettes. Anita and Bernie refused, Anita, being a teenager, wanted to stay in bed and continue sleeping, and given it was the day after Christmas, Bernie wanted to stay home and play with his new toys, but Brad insisted that he would be fine to go alone. Brad and his aunt Marilyn were close, and the two would speak often about problems he was having at home with his mother. He told Marilyn he felt neglected and ignored, and on the rare occasion Sue would pay him attention, it was in the form of verbal and physical abuse, but we will discuss that more in detail later. After receiving his mother's blessings, Brad jumped the back fence and headed to the train station. He most likely followed the same route the Foley children always did when they were catching a train. He would walk to Mob's Lane, to Midson Road, before turning onto Hillview Road, and that's where the train station was located. Or possibly he took Terry Road all the way to Hillview Road and onto Eastwood train station. Regardless of which route he had taken, it would have been about a half an hour walk. Within minutes of Brad leaving, Bernie changed his mind and decided to jump over the fence and follow after his younger brother. Unfortunately, though, He wasn't able to find him, and Brad would never be seen by his family alive again. When Brad didn't return that night, Sue was obviously concerned. She attended Eastwood Police Station to report her son missing, only to be told there was nothing the police could do at this point, and for her to return the next afternoon if Brad hadn't returned – and that would be 24 hours later. Which we know is completely ridiculous. We're talking about a 10-year-old boy here, missing for eight hours at this point. So much could have happened already. But Sue tried to dismiss her worries and thought that if the police weren't concerned, then she shouldn't be either. She tried to convince herself that Brad decided to stay at his aunt's overnight. Unfortunately... Sue did not have a landline phone, so she was unable to confirm this. December 27th, 1982. When Brad had not returned by that afternoon, Sue again went into the Eastwood Police Station, accompanied by an unidentified man. Police searched the routes mentioned by the family as the ones Brad was most likely to take and Brad's disappearance was featured on the nightly news. The train station staff believed they saw him boarding the train around the time he should have reached the train station. But being the early 1980s and without the surveillance footage to back this up, police now believe Brad never made it as far as the train station. And unfortunately, no significant tips or sightings came in. The Foley family would later be critical of the investigation, or lack of investigation would be more apt. They point to the fact that they were from a low socioeconomic area, and because they were Aboriginal, that they didn't get the resources that Brad needed to be found. Anita and Bernie would later state police did not do enough to find their brother. Quote, we do not think the police have done a good enough or hard enough job to find our brother. Unquote they would point to such aspects of the investigation, like police only searching along the two possible routes the family said Brad would normally take. Both routes, Bernie and Anita, had already walked a dozen times that morning looking for any sign of their brother, and that the police didn't check other roads just in case he went a different way that day, that the police did not want to consider other scenarios other than he ran away, this was mainly due to unconfirmed sightings of Brad. According to Brad's police file, on January 26, 1982, there was an alleged sighting of Bradford at Eastwood Train Station by Senior Sergeant John Trent. January 22, 1983, there was an alleged sighting on Old Canterbury Road by David Hill. And on January twenty-third, five days later, a sighting at the same location this time by a child protection worker. The police theorised that Brad had joined a group of young runaways, known as the Street Kids, who frequented the Kings Cross area. This theory would be supported by another unconfirmed sighting of Brad at a pinball parlour in Kings Cross in late 1982 or early 1983. Now, to me just him being 10 years old and potentially being in the Kings Cross area in the early 1980s. This should have been enough of an alarm bell for the police to at least put some resources into looking for him there. Kings Cross in the 1980s was known to be a hot spot for crime, drugs and prostitution. The street kids themselves were believed to be bought and sold through a network of pedophiles in Newcastle, Wollongong, Brisbane and Melbourne and the kids would use this network just to survive on the streets. This should have been enough for the police to at least question people in the area, to see if they had seen Brad, or to put up posters in the King's Cross area. But they didn't. They wrote him off as just another hopeless, lost juvenile delinquent, and they refused to consider that Brad was in genuine danger. It wouldn't be until almost a year later that an operation was sent into the area of Kings Cross and Oxford Street to try and bust this pedophile ring that was using these street kids, with an officer posing as a pedophile. They would go into clubs in that area and attempt to meet with other pedophiles to gather intelligence about that network – But then those involved believed the potential risk to the street kids' lives was too high by the police investigation, and the operation was quickly stopped. Now, the leads did trickle in over the years and decades that followed, but Brad was never seen or heard from again. Some things leave you guessing. Like... Why are yawns contagious? But not Mailchimp. Mailchimp eliminates guesswork from email marketing by analysing data from billions of emails to offer up personalised recommendations for how to improve your email content and targeting. Guess less and sell more with Intuit Mailchimp. Sue would spend the next two years doing what the police wouldn't, and that's searching for her son. Her daughter Anita would later state in the 2009 coronial inquest, as soon as her mother received her fortnightly government pension, she would spend all of it by travelling to the city to look for Brad. She would go into local businesses, showing his photo, travelling from King's Cross to Newtown and back again, desperate for answers. Sue's family believe it was her grief that would kill her. And unfortunately, in 1986, Lorna Sue Foley died due to complications from her alcohol abuse, aged 37 years old, leaving 17-year-old Anita to raise her 15-year-old brother Bernie and continue to fight for justice for Brad. During the 2009 coronial inquest, it came to be revealed that Brad and his siblings were actually awards of the state at the time of his disappearance. Sue had her demons. She was an alcoholic and she abused alcohol on a daily basis. Unfortunately, she was also an angry drunk, and the children, in particular Brad, were the targets to these emotional outbursts. It was actually Sue herself that contacted the Department of Child Services because she felt she could not handle the children anymore. But in December 1982, when Brad went missing, the children were with their mother on visitation for Christmas. And it was because of this, it was theorised that perhaps Sue could be responsible for Brad's disappearance. Sue had a long criminal history, including burglary, assault and malicious injury. The latter relating to an incident because he turned down her sexual advances. Sue's neighbours and friends would later report that Sue was abusive to the children. On one occasion, a neighbour saw Sue throw a fish tank towards where Brad was standing, and it smashed in the middle of the road. Another time, Sue boasted to Marilyn Cox, the same aunt Brad was visiting that day. Sue told Marilyn that she had burnt Brad's bed, quote, I'll teach that little bastard a lesson, unquote. And after Brad went missing, Sue allegedly said to Marilyn that she was happy there was only three of them and that she was glad she no longer had Brad. Marilyn would also claim she overheard a conversation in a Newtown bar where a drunk Sue would tell a story to other patrons as she chopped up Brad's body and buried him in the backyard of their Dundas home. In her official statement to police, Marilyn would tell police that Brad considered her house to be a safe house and that Brad was terrified of his mother, that he believed his mother was going to seriously hurt him. Marilyn would go on to say that she believed Brad was malnourished because he was quite small for his age and very thin, that she never saw Sue cook for the children and there was never any food in the Foley home. Although I would think if this was the case, it would have been noted by the Department of Child Services and in his case report, which from my research, it does not appear to be. Some kids are just small and thin because that's their build genetically, and Brad's other siblings also seem to be the same. Now, this is where the story gets a bit strange. A local clairvoyant, Grant Austin, who was 18 years old at the time of Brad's disappearance, and he actually lived in the same house as the Foley's just months before they did, he claimed that in 1998 he began having dreams where Brad was buried under the front steps of the property. And this would stay with him for years. So much so, he went back to the Dundas property himself and dug underneath looking for anything to satisfy his visions. As he only had access to basic equipment, some shovels and a sifter, he contacted the Crime Stoppers tip line to report his suspicions. Quote, I never felt I was right, just thought maybe the police would go and have a look for him. I was prepared to be wrong. My whole aim has actually been not only to help Brad, but to also help his family. Unquote. Because of this, and because of the statements from Marilyn and the Foley's former neighbours, on January 22nd, 2002, police were granted permission to excavate the grounds of the Foley's former Dundas home in an effort to find Brad's remains. Police would sift through nine tonnes of dirt and rubble from under the home. Cadaver dogs were also brought in to assist, but no trace of Brad was found in or around the home. Detectives who testified at the coronial inquest stated that if Sue Foley was still alive today, they would consider her a person of interest in her son's disappearance. However, the coroner refused to consider this a possibility and ruled out Sue's involvement. I do believe it should be publicly stated. There is absolutely no evidence to suggest that Lorna Foley was any way involved in the disappearance or suspected death of her son, Bradford Foley. Unquote. For the record, Brad's siblings, Anita and Bernie, agree with this. Quote, my mother did not kill my brother. I know that in my heart and in my soul. I know it. I feel it. My mother loved my brother to the max. He was virtually the golden child. That's one thing you guys got wrong. Interestingly, it was also revealed during the inquest that despite a number of Eastwood police being involved in the missing persons case, several key detectives testified they didn't even remember the investigation nor the missing boy. This just highlights how little resources and attention this case received at the time, and I would dare to say, since. I live fairly local to Sydney, and I've seen Brad's face appear on my social media during missing persons campaigns, but I did not know anything about this case where other missing persons investigations at the time, like three-year-old Simon Brooke, five-year-old Renee Aiken, and nine-year-old Samantha Knight, I would feel comfortable in saying people are aware of these cases nationally, if not internationally.' But the lack of police interest goes back to what we were saying earlier in the episode, that because the police wrote Brad off as another runaway, and because he was Aboriginal and from a low socio-economic environment, that didn't attract the higher level of public interest, and therefore police resources. Because as we know listening to true crime podcasts, public outcry, public interest and police resources, they tend to go hand in hand. January 2009, Westmead Coroner's Court. The coronial inquest was held, presided over by Deputy State Coroner, Carl Milovanovich. He was very critical of the police investigation and that Brad's disappearance should have been given higher priority than what it received. Again, we are talking about a high-risk 10-year-old here. The inquest initially went over four days until it was revealed Sue's ex-husband had tracked the family down just months before Brad disappeared. This was not Brad's nor his sibling's father, but a man named Vince Eli, who had a very violent criminal history. The family were terrified of this man. So the coroner adjourned the inquest for seven months in the hopes he could be located and interviewed. Unfortunately, they were unable to find him, and the inquest reconvened on August 6, 2009. The coroner would ultimately conclude that due to the balance of probability, Brad was murdered soon after his disappearance in unknown circumstances, and by person or persons unknown. One positive to take out of this was that while Coroner Molivanovich was critical of missing persons investigations, not just with Brad, but several other similar cases in the early 1980s, he also commended the shift in attitudes in current times, and that if Brad had gone missing in 2009, the investigation would have been handled differently, and he almost certainly would have been classified as an endangered missing person almost immediately. Again, I am not sure if I entirely agree with this. There is still a large divide between how missing persons are treated from different backgrounds and different socioeconomic situations. I guess we will never know now, because it's far too late for Brad. And short of a deathbed confession, I don't see his family ever getting the answers they are so desperately seeking." This thought process would be supported during a press conference on December 17, 2011, announcing a $100,000 reward for any resolution in Brad's missing persons investigation. Quote, Cold cases are difficult to solve, but the passage of time and this reward may offer encouragement to someone with a guilty conscience or someone who may have been told something about the disappearance to come forward. Unquote. There are several theories discussed in this case, and by far the most probable is that Brad was abducted. Nietzsche and Bernie believe the pedophile network that were trafficking the street kids group were most likely involved in their brother's disappearance. Another possibility is that Brad, being Brad, befriended a stranger on the train, and this stranger had nefarious motives. A wrong place, wrong time scenario. The latter theory, the stranger theory... That's the scenario cold-case detectives believe is what happened, although armchair sleuths do blame Sue for the murder because of her history of abuse towards the children. For me, though, too much supports Brad leaving the home that day and just never returning home. We see a lot of suspicious behaviours from parents after their children disappear, but Sue did all she could. She almost did more than she could handle and the grief killed her. And although Sue was not a good mother, she was allegedly abusive and neglectful and all the horrible things that supported her children being in state care. Despite that, I don't believe she murdered her son. And unfortunately, she went to her deathbed with that stigma, that perception of guilt following her. Anita and Bernie would struggle with substance abuse into their adult life as they dealt with their childhood. Bernie in particular, dealing with the grief of allowing his little brother to leave the home without him on that fateful day, quote, There is not a day that goes by that I don't think about why was I so selfish, just because I wanted to play with my Christmas toys. In a way, I blame my mother, because she had such a bad smoking habit. But in another way, I blame myself because I should have run after him sooner, unquote. Brad is now listed on National Unidentified Persons Databases, with DNA samples taken from Anita in the event Brad's remains are found. Quote, All we would like is for our brother to be found, dead or alive, so we can get closure and get on with our lives. Unquote. Bradford Foley was 10 years old at the time of his disappearance. He was 135 centimetres tall, or four foot four, and of thin build with brown hair and brown eyes. Brad is Indigenous, with a dark brown complexion. He was last seen wearing blue shorts, green flip-flops, and a yellow shirt with the words Life Be In It printed on it. If Brad is still alive today, he would be 49 years old. If you have your own thoughts on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook. Like the page so you don't miss any episode and join the discussion group to share your ideas and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, and on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please share on your social media of choice and rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. We are now on Patreon, so if you are able, please become a patron for as little as $2 a month for early release, ad-free episodes, and starting this month, exclusive Patreon episodes. This week's episode was researched, written, hosted and produced by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Some things leave you guessing. Like, why are your yawns contagious? But not MailChimp. MailChimp eliminates guesswork from email marketing by analyzing data from billions of emails to offer up personalized recommendations for how to improve your email content and targeting. Guess lessons sell more with Intuit MailChimp.